You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. It's good to have you here as we start a new series called Untangling Christmas. And from just a couple of chuckles I hear, I have a feeling you've had that problem as well. It's the one thing I dread every time I start decorating outside or inside is that ball of lights from last year. And then half of them don't work. You can't figure out which one it is. And you just decide to throw it out and start over again. Well, um, yeah, I think that's a metaphor for how this season becomes such a tangled mess in so many ways. Um, Overscheduled overworked, over-commercialized, over-anxious, distracted, exhausted. Christmas can be that, can it? It doesn't have to be. Um, But the first one was actually exhausting and confusing and a tangled mess. And even the times that were prophesied about the first Christmas, they were too also times that were a tangled mess. You know, it's so ironic. The whole idea of Christmas is that God came into this world through his son, Jesus Christ, to start untangling the mess that we made of this place. God entered into the snarl of our own sins and deceptions and power plays and exploitations, and he brings light into this darkness and hope into despair and joy into the midst of our sadness and peace into the midst of our conflict. And he doesn't do it through some divine edict from above or from some military muscle that he shows through an angelic army, but actually by becoming part of the tangled mess itself, becoming a baby born in a manger. And so the whole point of Christmas is that we celebrate how God is untangling this mess. And yet the irony is we make more of it by celebrating Christmas, right? So this series, by the way, we're going to be looking through uh, the first 12 chapters of the prophet Isaiah. And these are some of the most famous passages in the whole book, at least some of the snippets of those passages. And how many of you were in children's Christmas programs for Sunday school or other pageants as a child? How many of you also memorized a couple passages from Isaiah, like, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Anybody? Yeah. How about, uh, for a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Or, those who are seating in darkness have seen a great light. Those are some of those passages that are here in Isaiah chapters 1 through 12. And when I remember those Christmas pageants, Um, we kind of snipped those little passages out, totally out of context of what was going on in Isaiah's day and age, as if he was just speaking in the midst of, well, I don't know, he could have been anywhere at any time saying these words and just basically 700 years before Jesus was born to show that God had a plan, it was divine, it was predicted, and he accomplished it. And that's all these passages were used for at the time. And there's truth to that. That's not a problem. But boy, as an adult now, I'm starting to read Isaiah again and going like, what a mess that he spoke these words into. A tangled mess called Judah and Jerusalem, 
And uh, we find it was just an amazing contradistinction between the good news that would be coming and the bad news of his day and age. And that's actually good news. It's good news because so often I think we're always trying to create this, this idealized, um, I don't know, home alone-ish version of Christmas, you know. The what? Yeah, I guess there's some violence in it, you know. Yeah, I know there's some violence in it. But, you know, that whole feeling like all the family's together and everybody's celebrating in the end and everything's wonderful, right? And so often Christmas isn't that. And then we go like, oh, it's such a mess. How many of you are wondering if Thanksgiving is going to be a little of a mess around the table <laughs> with the conversations and the people that are coming over? Hmm? Yeah. We, the good news is the fact that God comes into the tangle of our mess. He untangles it all with his grace and goodness and truth. And that's going to be the case. That's still going to be true no matter what this Christmas season is like. So we're going to be looking at Isaiah, and we're starting today actually in Isaiah 2, though we'll refer back to Isaiah 1. And we're going to read uh, Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. By the way, you can follow along in the Bible app, the version. there are notes for all of this. But let's read this now, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem... It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, if you don't realize it by now, I think uh, Isaiah's uh, first 12 chapters, uh, a couple commentators basically say he is contrasting two different things, the reality of the way Jerusalem actually is in his day and age, to the reality that God, vision of how God is going to bring it to this glorious future. So in a sense, it's a tale of, or I like to say a tangle of two cities, okay? A tangle of two cities, and we're going to be looking at these three points from this text. That tangle of two cities, how God untangles those two, and how we get to live right now still in a tangle of two cities. So first of all, the tangle, and you might say, wait a minute, that passage was wonderful. You know, they'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Everything sounds wonderful. It's the fact that everybody is streaming to God's place where God does not uh, preside over it in some exalted state of, um, you know, pomp, but where he teaches and he, he's the teacher to instruct people. And the fact that peace and prosperity break out so much, we don't need any weapons of war. We turn those in to gardening utensils. Isn't that, I think that's a wonderful future. It's what God intends. And so I don't see a second city or anything else. Well, let me tell you, what's fascinating is I just kind of did pluck out these verses 
from the chapter before and the words right after. And you can't get much more of a shocking contrast than what Isaiah just said here and what he says right after and right before. For instance, right after the next phrase, Isaiah 2, 6 to 8, he says this, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because why has God rejected them? They're full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Jerusalem itself, that's the reality of what Isaiah was dealing with in his day. Jerusalem is a place that's filled with occultic practices, with greed and materialism, with militarism, with idolatry. How in the world is God going to take a city like that and turn it into the words of our text today? How does that work, right? And before, if you want to read something, and I would you know, challenge you all to read the first 12 chapters of Isaiah during this series at some time and just kind of and try to understand what's going on. The first chapter, he really takes to task this Jerusalem and this Judah. We'll just read one verse from it. And that is Isaiah 1 verse 4. Ah, sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offsprings of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And he starts out saying, you know what? (laughs) An oxen knows its master. A donkey knows who feeds it. But somehow my own people don't know me. Basically, they're dumber than a donkey. Yeah. You can read through the whole first chapter of Isaiah, and you find just uh, how Isaiah is castigating the reality of what Jerusalem is like. The city of God is the city of God's enemies in Isaiah's day. That's what's shocking. And if you want to know the history of the people of Israel, it's not a, we can have romantic versions of everybody celebrated the feasts and got together and everything, you know. It's not, you read through the Old Testament, it's not filled with that at all. In fact, the rule of thumb that I've shared before is that 90% of the time, 90% of Israel were worshiping idols. Okay? This is the reality of God's people. And what's going on with idolatry is not just idolatry. All sorts of things come in with it. John Oswald, one of the comment, uh, he wrote a commentary on Isaiah. He shares this for the prophets, idolatry, adultery, and oppression are always indissolubly linked. In other words, you, you break the first commandment, having no other gods be, all the other ones get broken as well, all the time. People start acting out in different ways. And Isaiah was struggling with the reality of what it was, but also the vision of what God wanted for his people. He's not the only one. About 1,100 years after him, there was a man named St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. And what's fascinating is in uh, 410 AD, a pivotal event that happened in all of Western civilization is that the Vandals... The barbarians, under the uh, commander of King Alaric, captures the city of Rome. 
Rome, the eternal city. Rome, the center of the empire. Rome that could never fall. Rome that had the myth of being impregnable. There is no way any of this is going to fall apart. And it just shook the entire empire when that happened. And a lot of people started to blame, well, what, what's different now? Why did it happen at 410? Well, it's those Christians. They got to stop worshiping the other gods and goddesses. They stopped having us really give all allegiance to Rome and its understanding. They're the problem. And Augustine said, no, this is a tangle of two cities as well. He wrote a book called The City of God, by the way. And St. Augustine said, no, we have to understand the real history of what's going on in this world. Much like there were two Jerusalems in Isaiah's day, there are, in a sense, two Romes going on here, two cities going on, the city of God and the city of man, all the time at the same time. And in the city of God, as Isaiah 2 states, God is central Everybody is learning from him and growing in him, and there's peace and prosperity. But in the city of man, where there's multiple gods and goddesses, and people are worshiping all sorts of different things, there's also <laughs> a sense of power plays and politics and violence and corruption and greed. And everybody is treating everybody else um, the way they don't want to be treated. Augustine contends that both are going on at the same time. And that's the problem. He said, no, God's city has not fallen. It's the city of man that fell when Rome fell and the Vandals came in. Just as Babylon fell before and Persia fell and Greece had fallen before, this is the constant theme throughout the Bible, that there is the kingdom of humanity and the kingdom of God, and God's kingdom is the one that reigns forever. Do you see any parallels to any of this for our day and age? I have a feeling you do, and I don't have to spell them all out. You might go like, well, but John, you know, in America today, 80% of people, and the polls are saying this, 80% of people still believe in one God. They're not worshiping idols. Well, theoretically, everybody, you know, most people in the United States do believe that there is theoretically one God. But what are they centering their lives on? What are they desiring? What are they worshiping? What are they pursuing? That's the real question. That's their functional god or goddess or multiple gods and goddesses. So this last week when we, um, Hugo and I did the uh, Revelation study, we were in Revelation 4 with a whole very, um, the vision of God's throne, very similar in some ways to Isaiah chapter 2 here. Um, and I brought up a quote from Eugene Peterson that I think really kind of ties a number of these things together. He talks about worship here and how when one centers on God, how life works, and when we are not centered on God, what happens? He writes, in worship, God gathers his people to himself as center. The Lord reigns, Psalm 93.1. Worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from the center of the living God. That's Isaiah chapter 2. 
Now, here comes Isaiah 1 and also other places. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. Does that sound, boy, ouch. And he wrote this years ago, Eugene Peterson, and it sounds like today. We move in either frightened panic hmm, or deluded lethargy as we are in turn alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. If there is no center, there is no circumference. People do not worship, are swept into a vast restlessness epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. That's the tangle we call Christmas. It's just another version of the tangle that's going on all year long, but it just gets hyped up with all the expectations and all the parties and all of the events and all of the, you know, just name it, all of the gifts that have to be bought, etc. The tale or the tangle of two cities. Do you see what's going on here? Now, the real question is, how is it that Isaiah, who's living in this mess called Jerusalem at the time, who sees the idolatry and the debauchery and the immorality and the injustice and the chaos and the violence and the oppression, and he spells that out. How in the world does that same city become the city that we read in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5? And that's how we start to understand how God does kind of in ultimately untangle these two. He writes so poetic. And I loved this at the beginning I, um, uh, where, where Isaiah says, or it says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, not heard, but saw. Isn't that an interesting way? So he saw he saw, he had the vision of what God was going to do. Ultimately, he, God is going to bring this about. And um, that vision is spectacular. The peace, the prosperity, the harmony that results when all nations are streaming to and centered on God. How in the world is this going to happen? And God is not, like I said, elevated as some pompous deity, but as a teacher of the people who brings uh, an end to the need for any war and any conflict of any time. And this is the same Jerusalem that would kill the prophets, as Jesus would say, and stone those sent to her. The same Jerusalem that worshiped the false god and followed after all the other nations around them. This same Jerusalem is the one that Isaiah says will become the city of God. And this is God's promise. This is the truth. This is the reality, whether we recognize it or not. Now, at this point in time, you might be going like, okay, this is nice and... Th but look, my life is a tangled mess. Isn't yours? I get caught up in all sorts of stuff that gets me off track into the circumference of all sorts of things. And sometimes I go like, and I look at my family, no, I, you know, my, my extended family, um, my, my own life. <laughs> I look at society in general, our community, and go like, how in the world is this ever going to turn out? 
Don't you think that sometimes? This is going to turn out. That's what Isaiah is saying. God's going to bring this about. God has brought this about. God will untangle this mess. No question about it. It's his gospel. That's how God works. Now, the path forward for Jerusalem, Isaiah knew. And he'll spell out in the prophecies of his book. It's not a path towards magically turning into this new Jerusalem. It's a path through destruction, through death, through loss, through a humiliating defeat, through the destruction of its temple and the breaking down of its walls and the taking of the people into exile, through the humiliation of at least 70 years in Babylon, and through a return to the land and to this place to never have that kind of glory again, always looking forward to something that God was going to do and wondering when it was going to happen. It was through a time where they would still be dominated by foreign powers, where they'd never be in charge again of their own property, where they would never have a king from the line of David for hundreds and hundreds of years, and God knew exactly what he was doing. Isaiah's first message here in this book is about the tale of the reality of the real Jerusalem in his day, and that was going to be put to death. And a whole new reality, a new resurrection of a Jerusalem would come about. You could say that his first message, if you read through chapter 1 and elsewhere, is kind of, hey, you're oppressing others, you will be oppressed. You are violent, you will face violence. You are haughty, you will fall. It's the word of law. You get what you deserve. You'll reap what you sow. If you are this way, then this is the way it will turn out. Cause and effect. Sadly, I think a lot of um, preachers, especially the preacher on campus, have you heard the preacher on campus? Yeah, that's the only message he's got, right? You reap what you sow, you're terrible, you're going to hell. <laughs> it's, he's a desire. He's, uh, oof, what, what a mess. I, yeah, right? There's another message that Isaiah has, and this is uh, in this passage. Yes, God may destroy the old that way, but God will raise up a new. And it works by a different logic. It's not the logic of if and then, it's a logic of because. It's a logic of promise. It's a logic of because, 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 because. Many becauses. Because God is faithful. And because he is just. Because God called Abraham and he promised that he would be a father of a great nation. Because God also kept his promise and rescued a reluctant Israel and a reluctant through a reluctant Moses. Because God bore with a rebellious Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, because God brought them into a promised land, because God would not play by the rules of his own people, because God would not give them what they deserve, because God would call even out kings and priests and other leaders who had gone wayward to them, because God would take Judah into exile, but because God would be with them in exile, because God would not treat Israel as Israel deserved, because God is faithful to his promises, because God is loving, because God is good, because God is true, because in the fullness of time, 
when God had quite enough of all of our own foolishness, God would become a human being in Jesus Christ to show who God really is. And because Jesus would enter finally into a rebellious city of Jerusalem, the city of God's enemy in Jesus' own day, and because Jesus would willingly be hung from a cross and nailed there by the religious and political leaders of his day, and because Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil at that cross, and because God granted us new relationship with him through him, and because God will not allow the powers of this world to alter the future for God's people. Because of that, this new Jerusalem comes about. Because, 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 because. Yeah, it sounds like the Wizard of Oz, doesn't it? because of all the wonderful things that God does and who God is. Yes, a destruction of the old Jerusalem will come, but the resurrection of a new Jerusalem because of the promises of, of God through, through Jesus Christ is also coming. That's how God untangles the mess. How God gets us out of enmeshment with this world. And so now the question really becomes, and this is the one that um, Augustine dealt with, one that Isaiah dealt with, the one that we have to deal with as well, is how in the world do we live in basically a tangle of two cities? We are in Babylon in a very real sense. At the same time, we are part of this new Jerusalem. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. We are kind of stuck in between these two, looking forward to the day when these words of Isaiah will become fully realized when Christ returns in glory. So how do we live in the midst of this? I'm skipping a slide and coming back to it, so, okay. Isaiah brings it up here. In Isaiah 2.5, he says this, O house of Jacob, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That is his response to having laid out this vision. It's like, okay, now, what are we supposed to do in the midst of this? Start walking right now in the light of the Lord. Start living by his truth. Paul, in the New Testament time period, says much the same, where in Philippians 3, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Though I live here right now, as Augustine would say, in the city of man, I live by the way the city of God runs. I live by compassion and truth and grace and faithfulness. I start to take on the character of Jesus Christ even now. I live and I love the city that I'm in. Because you see, uh, God did not like hate Jerusalem and despise Jerusalem. And he loved Jerusalem and wept over Jerusalem and was agonizing over his very own people who were walking away from him. God loves this world, this messy, messed up, tangled mess of a world. And that means he loves you as tangled up and messy and messed up that you might be. And he is going to bring about a glorious new future for you because that's what he promises. And that's who he is. Timothy Keller, who um, led a church 
in, da in Manhattan for years and years, came to understand, I think, um, the nuance of how to live both in a city like New York and not become like the city of New York. He says that we are to love the city through witness and sacrificial service for the well-being of our neighbor, whether they believe us or not, and what we believe. And yes, we should expect hostility that we won't be fully accepted ever. And we don't have to bristle at that hostility. We don't have to take on a position of being uh, defensive over it or turn against. We can love the city. And as Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah 29, to pray for the peace and the prosperity and live for that in the midst of it. It's to be faithfully present, to be different, you know, to be different. So, you think we live in a tangle of two cities? Yeah. God is going to untangle it all. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for um, <laughs> the word through Isaiah today. Amazingly, he can be so hopeful and so sure of the future you have for us. We thank you for this word that we will beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. And we will uh, be centered on you, Lord God, and we will live in eternity like that. And help us, Lord, now to come and walk in the light of that truth, in the light of your promises, the light of your gospel, because of who you are, Lord, because of what you have done for us, because you are a good, good father, and we are your children. Lord, you know how tangled our lives are right now. And you know what this week is bringing with Thanksgiving and Christmas and the, and the traffic and the commercialism and the confusion and all sorts of things that are coming our way. Help us, Lord, to see clearly your vision not only for um, the future of this world, but for our lives as well. And that what you have begun in us through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, you are going to bring to completion on the day when he comes again in glory. We thank you, Lord. We praise you, Jesus, that you got into the middle of this mess and that you have loved us completely through it. Lord God, we lift up to you many who need your, uh, your healing in our congregation. We pray that you'd be with them. We pray too for those over this last year who have experienced loss. We pray for ourselves, Lord, here at Thrive as we have lost some very dear members and we're coming to those anniversaries. And as the holidays approach, Lord, that loneliness and that loss uh, sometimes is magnified. So bring your healing among us, Lord. Fill us with a peace that passes human understanding. Comfort us in the midst of that sadness, but fill us with the joy that you have. We know, Lord, um, they are with you. They trusted you and you have saved them. We thank you for that. Lord, we lift up to you this coming week and the gatherings at our Thanksgiving uh, tables. We pray that you would give us a way to witness to your truth and your love to those um, who are gathered in our homes. We pray that you would bless those times.
keep us safe and keep us growing closer to you. And we pray, Lord, this Christmas that we wouldn't get entangled up into the mess that this world has, but rather help untangle not only our own lives, but the lives of others through your gospel and your truth. Lord, as we prepare now to receive um, of your goodness and grace in the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would forgive us of all our tangled mess of sin in our lives and rather, Lord God, um, renew us and lead us to delight in your will and to walk in your ways that we would come and walk in the light that you have for us. All this we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.